Well, let's, let's pray. Lord, we do lift up Harris and Marcus to you and Rob Shelton. Um, as I pray every day for little Harris. With Christ, all things are possible. The medical community says there's no hope, but there's always hope with Christ. Lord, I pray that you would confound the world and do something miraculous and restore little Harrison to health and vitality. Or if that not be your will, that you take him gently across the Jordan and strengthen his parents who have been on this roller coaster ride for, golly, a couple of years and um, just give them the strength they need. And we, and we pray for their f- Christian family there in Dallas Incarnation Episcopal Church that they would gather around them and, and that they would draw support from their brothers and sisters in Christ there. And for Rob Shelton, my dear friend, Lord, I pray that you would see fit uh, to put him together with the right doctors and procedures that you can work in and through to completely eradicate every cancer cell from his body and completely heal and restore him. Flood his heart and that of his entire family with your perfect love, which casts out all fear. And we pray that there would be a great outcome to this, Lord, a reason to give you great thanks and praise. Lord, as we gather here today to talk about the most important thing we'll ever talk about, and that's the person of Jesus Christ, guide me by your Holy Spirit. Uh, Build us up in Christ here uh, today and solidify us with the faith that has carried your church for almost two complete millennia now. And we ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Is there anybody that needs a sheet with the Apostles' Creed on it, in case you don't have one? Let's see. Could you hand those out, Paul? Thank you. Today we're going to look at the second clause of the Creed. It's the most lengthy. It's the most important because it deals with, with Jesus, the person of Christ. And uh, I want to say something at the beginning to just get us all on the same page so we don't walk out of here thinking... I'm okay when you might not be okay. You know, I try to make a point uh, the past two Sundays that the Christian faith is not just about intellectual assent to different doctrines and, and beliefs, intellectual assent to the Bible. It's, that's a part of it. But, um, you know, you can know about God without knowing God. There are going to be a lot of PhDs in religion in hell. Who can tell you all about the Bible, all about uh, all kinds of things, religious and spiritual, but they never met God at more than second hand. And that's one of the dangers in creedal confessionalism. We think, well, okay, I believe everything in this creed. I'm home free. Um, No, you can know about God without knowing God. If you'd like to delve into that whole issue in greater detail, I'd say they're about... 10 books that I think every Christian must read before they cross the Jordan. And one of them is uh, by an Anglican theologian, a great Reformed theologian named J.I. Packer, who's already crossed the Jordan. He wrote a book, gosh, almost 50 years ago now, called Knowing God. And if you've never read that, we're saved by grace, but I think Peter will ask you, have you read Knowing God before you come in here? (laughs) And if you haven't, there's probably a remedial place in heaven. But, you know, a lot of people keep an arm's length relationship with God. They believe everything, but they've never surrendered and really embraced 
Christ and know Christ. Have you ever seen that bumper sticker on a car that says God is my co-pilot? Uh, that's about, <laughs> that's theological blasphemy. I saw a bumper sticker that said, if God is your co-pilot, move over. And that's good theology. Uh, if you've got Jesus in the co-pilot seat and think he's happy there, Jesus will not occupy second place in your life and mine. He will not occupy the co-pilot seat. He wants a full-blown personal relationship with you and me. And that would be the most cocky thing I could ever say if I made that up. But it's throughout Scripture, he's saying that. He wants to draw you and me into a, a personal relationship with the living God who he embodies. So um, as we go through the Apostles' Creed, this is more than intellectual assent. It's about a relationship. So as we're talking about Christ today, I want you to think about where am I in that? Am, is Jesus kind of a second-hand relationship, or is it a first-hand relationship with me? And if you have a problem with that area, please come talk to me. I'll be glad to help you move into where Christ would like you to be. Now, I've talked about the Apostles' Creed being the, the, the creed that's the shortest and most widely accepted of all Christians around the world. And it's so important today to become a good theologian and really embody this this creed and and own it uh, this will keep you on the rails and the latest study i'm just shocked what i saw this week uh, ligonier ministries does a, a state of theology in america survey every year here's what came out this this week um, and they do this every year and every year these numbers are getting worse 43% of evangelicals, now these are people that self-identify. I'm an evangelical. They go to a church that would be considered evangelical, like First Pres. Agree to this statement. Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. 43%. Um, and then 56% of American evangelicals also agree that God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. Sounds wonderful. But if you read the Bible, <laughs> you see that God is, is not interfaith. Uh, it's about the one true living God who reveals himself through the Old and New Testament. Um, also, 66% of evangelicals say there's no such thing as absolute truth. Think about that. Now, that, they haven't obviously thought that through. In fact, you may be sitting here today going, what's wrong with that? Because you're being educated. I'm being educated that way all the time in our postmodern culture. The in thing that all the universities and really all schools are teaching is that there is no longer a concept of absolute truth. There's many truths. You have your truths. I have mine. We're not to judge anybody else's truth. If I say the sky is green, you're supposed to go, well, for me, it's blue. But if, it's, if that works for you, that's fine. But think this through. Um, would you agree that probably a definition of God would be an absolute being? In other words, there's no other being higher? I'd say that's a pretty good definition. Would you agree that if there is a God, 
He would embody the fullness of truth with a capital T. I think that's fair to say. That would be in my definition of God. So if you don't believe, 66%, two-thirds of evangelical Christians say there's no such thing as absolute truth, then that means you must be an atheist because there cannot be a God if there's no absolute truth. So part of what I want to do in this class is encourage you to be a good theologian. You don't have to be a, 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 you know, an academic theologian. Uh, in fact, I really don't want you to go there. Much of the great works in the Christian faith were not written for academics. They were written for lay people, including John Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion, written for lay people. There are no time in Christian history are there more great theological books being written today for lay people. And you ought to be having one of those going all the time. For me, I think probably a theologian that communicates to lay people as well as anyone, he just died a few years ago, is R.C. Sproul fellow Presbyterian, and he's got a variety of books on just about every subject under the theological umbrella. And he's funny, he's creative, he'll make you think. They're, I don't want to say easy read, but they are. I mean, you're drawing. You're like, I can't wait to get to the next chapter. So get something by R.C. Sproul, Sproul and read that. And, you know, here's another thing that will help you stay on the rails theologically. I discovered this probably, I don't know, about 20 years ago. It's called the Rule of St. Vincent. It's 5th century. And St. Vincent said, um, to make sure you don't stray into heresy, and I'm going to paraphrase the rule, but he basically says, uh, embrace everything held by all Christians in all places at all times. Now, all is an exaggeration. No, you know, there's nothing that's been held by all Christians. And all, but... If, you're, if you have an idea theologically, check it out again. Is this what most Christians have believed in most places over the last two millennia? If so, you're probably in bounds. If not, you might want to not go there. Um, so anyway, um, as we talk about Jesus today, this is all about how you and I really are to relate to this second person of the Trinity. I believe in Jesus Christ his only son, our Lord. Let's unpack that. I remember my last class in seminary uh, was taught by Dr. Elizabeth Ochtemeyer. And she said, I don't want you guys going out of here preaching a bunch of malarkey in pulpits. I want to try to bring all this together for you. And she said, you know, if you can't go out of here and understand what faith is, you better not take a call anywhere. So she said, define faith for me. And all the brilliant guys in my class were all from Davidson College. And they'd all raise their hands, and they'd give some erudite thing, and she'd sit there and go, <laughs> And she said, here's what you need to have to carry you through your ministry to stay on the rails. Faith is nothing less than a personal relationship with the living Lord Jesus Christ. And she said, as long as you understand that, you're going to be okay. If you don't understand that, please don't be ordained. So um, Elizabeth knew what she was talking about. Um, okay, the second paragraph of our creed is about the second person of the Holy Trinity. Uh, it's the longest and most important clause because the Apostles' Creed um, really says that the basis of the Christian faith, the heart, the soul of the Christian faith, 
is the person of Jesus and our understanding of who he is. If you get that right, you're going to be okay. If you don't get that right, it doesn't matter how smart you are, how much you know theologically and all these other things, you're never going to uh, be on the, the, the right page. And the creed tells us four things in this clause about the person of Christ. It tells us his name, Jesus. It tells us his title, Christ. It tells us about his uniqueness, God's only son. And it tells us that he is our Lord. So let's unpack those things. Let's talk about, I believe in Jesus, okay? Um, Jesus was a real, live, historical being. We have more evidence for the existence of Christ than we do for Julius Caesar. And there's extra-biblical historians that have written about him. And the creed wants you and me to know that this was a real-life flesh-and-bone guy named Jesus, which was a common name back then. Joshua is how you say it in, in Hebrew. It means God saves. Well, that kind of fits, doesn't it? And, uh, you know, he's a, he was fully human. Um, he sweated. When he was a little boy, he played. He grew up around his dad's carpenter shop, which reminds me of that saying by Woody Allen. Um, if Jesus was a carpenter, how much did he charge for bookshelves? No, just throw that in. For, he actually said that one time. Okay. Um, poor Woody. He grew hungry, thirsty. He needed to sleep. He was like you and me in every way except one. Does anybody know what that is? Yeah, no sin. Hebrews 4, verse 15 tells us that he was sinless. That, and it doesn't mean he was not tempted. In fact, the Bible tells us he was tempted in every way as you and I are, except sin. You know, do you ever feel bad and guilty and probably deserving of hell because you've been tempted? I do. I have to remind myself, well, I didn't do it, so I'm really not guilty. We're not, you know, think about how hard this was for Jesus. So you and I give in on the temptation scale pretty early into the game. Jesus went all the way, and he never gave in. So he was under tremendous duress, but he never fell into sin. And that's just hard for us to even grasp. But we're going to talk a bit later about why that is crucial to who he is and what that means for um, you and me. And so um, he's this real live person named Jesus. But then the creed goes on and says, we believe in Jesus Christ. You know, a lot of people think Christ was Jesus' last name or something. No, no, it's not a name at all. Anybody know what Jesus' last name would be if he had to have one? Think about it. Who, his name would be Davidson. He's the son of David. And so I guess that would be his name, Jesus Davidson. But Christ is not his last name. Um, it's a title, and it can mean a number of things. First of all, it means anointed one, that Jesus was specially anointed by God. So are a lot of other people. But we're going to get into his uniqueness in just a minute. 
So it means anointed one, but then it also means, anybody think of another term? Begins with an M. Messiah. Messiah. Now you're getting into an area that if somebody is considered the Messiah or he calls himself the Messiah or people think he's the Messiah, you're getting into more than humanity and you're getting into some unique being that God in the Old Testament says is coming to save Israel. And most Jews opted for a totally human, you know, kind of a guy coming in on the white charger to save the nation of Israel and put her back on top of the heap of nations and destroy the Roman Empire. But Jesus doesn't go with that model. He takes the real model revealed in the Old Testament, and that's the one that fits his name, the Savior, the suffering servant who had come to save his people from their sins. And um, the New Testament and the Apostles' Creed are adamant in pointing out that not only is Jesus fully human, but he's also, this Messiah term means he's 100% God. Not 50% human and 50% God. 100% human and 100% God. Now, wait a minute. I went to college. I've got graduate degrees. Um, how can something be 200%? Give me a calculator. I'll show you it can't be true. Well, you know, here's part of the mystery of who Jesus is. Um, one of my professors in seminary used to say this. I think it's a great thing. He says, you know, Jesus is the one being who actually became man, fully man, without becoming unlike himself as God. That somehow, because, you know, we already talked about last week, God the Father, Almighty. If God is Almighty, then the rest of the creed kind of falls into place. Miracles, what's a big deal for a God that's Almighty to be, to, to come into this world and take on human flesh and bone and be 100% human without giving up his deity. Notice I said deity, not divinity. I hate it when people say, Jesus was divine. Or I believe in the divinity of Christ. Sometimes Anne makes pecan pies and I say, they're divine. But I don't believe, I'm not going to bow down and worship it. Deity is a term that has no wiggle room. Divinity does. So when we were talking about who Jesus is on the God side of thing, I always say 100% humanity, 100% deity. There's no wiggle room. One of the reasons the Apostle, Apostles' Creed was written, not only as a baptismal creed, but a big heresy that was common at the time was Arianism. That's first century, 21st century Unitarianism that thinks Jesus is fully human, a good guy. Maybe he was indwelt somehow by God and used specially, but he wasn't God. Unfortunately, 43% of evangelicals now really have become Unitarians, uh, saying he was a good teacher, but he wasn't God. If you, I can't quote it exactly, but C.S. Lewis has this great uh, paragraph in Mere Christianity. He says, you know, don't give me the argument that Jesus was a good teacher, but he wasn't God. He said, you know, any... Uh, but he that made the claims he made, and if he wasn't them, uh, is not a good teacher. In fact, he's a, a liar, a lunatic, or I love this, he says, or a person on the level of a man who thinks he's a poached egg. 
And he says, you know, be done with this idea that Jesus is a good teacher. Uh, there's no wiggle, there's no middle ground there. Either he was who he says he is, or he was a total fraud, and we should pack this place up and build a condominium here or something in place of this, this church. Um, and so the Apostles' Creed makes clear that he is Messiah, fully God as well as fully man. And then the creed goes on to solidify that even more by saying in the next phrase, God's only son. Only, only, that's an important word. You get a uniqueness idea here. Um, the Apostles' Creed asserts that there's a unique relationship between Jesus and God the Father. And this is a bald-faced affirmation of Jesus' deity even more so. Uh, than just calling him a Messiah. Now, the Apostles' Creed is, uh, make, uh, is claiming that Jesus is fully God, fully man, um, and he has, which means Jesus, if he's God, he's always been. He's an eternal being. Uh, somebody asked me one time, do you believe our planet has been visited by beings from outer space. I said, of course I do. Um, angels and God himself has come and taken on human flesh. Yeah, we've been visited. Do I believe there are other life forms in the universe? Doing the math with the latest computer studies, it's very unlikely that there is life anywhere, let alone human beings that can think like we are. If they do discover them, guess who made them? And uh, interesting question is, did Christ have to die for them as well? I don't, I don't, did they sin? I don't, probably. I don't know. Those are things that the Bible doesn't answer. So where the Bible's clear, we can be clear. Where it's, you know, not clear, we probably ought to shut up. So um, we'll see. We'll see. Someday we'll know for sure. But he's God's only son. You know, people have said to me, well, there's nowhere in Scripture that Jesus ever claims to be God. There's about 20. Uh, let me give you my, my favorite. Uh, Jesus confronted by uh, Jews and, and pagans, and, and the Jews are making the claim that, you know, are you saying you're older than Abraham? And Jesus says in John 1, or I'm sorry, in uh, Matthew 16, 15 through 17, he says, before Abraham was, I am. And it says they fell to the ground. Why did they do that? If Jesus was speaking in Hebrew, he would have said before Abraham was Yahweh, or however you pronounce the tetragrammaton, which is a, that's why Jesus was crucified. Not because the Jews were jealous and the Romans were uh, worried that, you know, there might be an insurrection to throw the empire over. He was crucified for one reason. Scriptures are clear. Because he claimed to be God, which was the highest blasphemy uh, in the Jewish way of thinking that there was. And also in Roman theology. Romans had a panoply of gods. In fact, no Christian was ever thrown in the arena because they were Christians. Um, you could be a Christian in the Roman Empire and they'd leave you alone as long as you agreed every day to line up with everybody else and take a pinch of incense and throw it on this 
altar to Caesar, who they had deified above all the other gods. And if you're a Christian who did that, they just let you go. Only one problem. The Christians wouldn't do it. They said there's only one God. We will not bow the knee or throw incense on anything other than to Jesus Christ, King of kings, the Lord of lords. They said, well, let's give you some incentive. We're going to throw you in the arena and release gladiators and or lions or both on you. And the Christians didn't flinch. They said, then do what you got to do. Um, by the way, you know, we think of the early centuries, like the second and third centuries, as being the time of martyrdom when Christians were thrown in the arena. If 2022 is an average year, more Christians will be martyred for their faith in Christ around the world than in all of the first centuries, first four centuries put together. The martyrdom's going on right now. Christians are refusing to bow the knee, particularly in Islamic countries and places like North Korea and China. So we live in a time of martyrdom today. Um, but why is it so crucial that Jesus be fully God and fully man? The creed wants you and me to understand who he is and why this is important. But you have to look back to the Old Testament sacrificial system. You know, um, the Old Testament makes clear that human beings blew it in the Garden of Eden. And it was a, um, a federal type of sinning that Adam and Eve did, meaning that uh, it's infected the human race down to today. The whole human, when Adam and Eve sinned, the whole human race, even though you and I weren't there, we didn't take the apple, we, we are born sinners. Uh, I like to ask people the question, are, do you, are, are you a sinner because you sin, or do you sin because you're a sinner? It's very important that you understand that question and figure out which one of those is right. Because we're short on time, I'll tell you which one's right. You sin because you're a sinner. You're born, so, oh, those babies are totally innocent. That's only said by someone who's never had one. What's, what's the first word out of it that a baby learns? Mine or no. And you think, where did that come from? I mean, so uh, we are, and the Bible teaches that we are born in sin. David says that in one of his psalms. And uh, so we sin because we're sinners. Um, we're not like Jesus, sinless. We're just, it, 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 we're infused with sin. So the Old God gave the, the Old Testament Hebrews a sacrificial system where every day priests offered sacrifices of lambs and doves and bulls and sheep and goats on these altars. And the bad thing, well, there's two bad things about it. Number one, it was... Um, these were penultimate sacrifices. They had to be done over, over, over again. And the other thing, go through Leviticus sometime and just stop and picture what's going on. And it talks about these, how many bulls are slaughtered in one sacrifice and everything. These priests would wear, they look like good humor men. You know, remember good humor, ice cream, and the white robes and turbans and everything. And then it's a slaughterhouse. I mean, and they're chunking blood all over the place. It's gory and it's awful. And all these innocent animals are dying and suffering because of human sin. 
why did God do it like that? I think to get home to the people just how awful their sin is and how the innocent do suffer because of your sin and mine. And I mean, how gory the whole thing is. But it's all penultimate. need to be repeated over and over and over again. Um, and, you know, because humanity sinned, to get this thing done ultimately, human beings need to pay for their sin. Animals can't pay for your sin and mine. They're innocent. They didn't commit it. You and I need to pay the price. But that creates kind of a conundrum. How, how can you and I pay for our own sin? A lot of people think they can. I'm just going to go running around doing a lot of good deeds. And, and there's too many Christians out there who, if I were to ask, do you think you're going to make it to heaven? They say, yes, I think so. Why? Because I think my good deeds are going to outweigh my bad deeds. I would say to you, how do you know? How do you know? This is, this is Muslim theology, not Christian theology. Mohammed even said, I don't know where I'm going to wind up. Because I don't know if my good deeds will outweigh my... I hope so, but I don't know. So every Muslim that understands Muslim theology dies in terror, except a handful. Those are the guys that fly planes into World Trade Centers, because Muslim theology says, if you martyr yourself, you're guaranteed entrance into the Muslim paradise. Sorry, Ann, I can't resist. My favorite joke, it's, it's bad theology and it's dated, but I love it. I think it's very clever. Um, and it goes like this. Uh, Osama bin Laden, see how dated it is, is uh, goes to a leadership seminar and they say, don't ask your employees to do what you're not willing to model for them. Well, gosh, I'm telling all these guys to blow themselves up. I guess I need to do that. So he straps some dynamite on himself and goes into a building and <laughs> martyrs himself. And he winds up in heaven. This is the bad theology. And um, he's met in heaven. The first person he meets in heaven is George Washington. And Washington goes up to him and says, you tried to destroy the nation. I found it. <laughs> Slugs him. The next person that walks up to him is Patrick Henry. Patrick Henry kicks him in the knee. And, and then Thomas Jefferson, kind of bad theology here too, and kind of whacks him in the back. And then all of a sudden Robert E. Lee appears, knocks him down, Stonewall Jackson appears, starts stomping him. This goes on for about an hour. And Osama's laying there all beat up. And then Peter comes along. And Osama says, oh man, I thought this was heaven. And Peter says, it is. He said, well, my Muslim theology told me when I got to heaven, I'd be met by 70 virgins. Peter says, no, 70 Virginians. <laughs> my family's all from Virginians, I like that. You and I can't pay for our sin. Animals can't do it. We're in this dilemma. There has to be an infinite sacrifice paid that will cover our sin. And here's God's rescue plan. God says, I will take your sin. As an infinite being, I can pay the infinite sacrifice. But I will become man, because man must pay the price, but I'll also be, not become unlike myself as God. And so this duality of Jesus as the fully God, fully man, 
makes the cross more, something more than just a, an unfortunate martyrdom and a sad outcome for, for Jesus. And that's why we call the Friday that that happened on Good Friday, not Horrible Friday or Terrible Friday or Horrific Friday. Because in that, the greatest good out of the worst, most unjust tragedy comes the greatest good, our salvation. But only God could accomplish our salvation. And being a God of justice, he had to pay. Every fine, fine, tiny bit of sin must be paid for. And God does that rather than you and me having to do it. We couldn't do it. A lot of people think, well, I'm glad Jesus died on the cross for me, so I don't have to do that. No, you could take me out in the courtyard and nail me to a cross a billion times. I, my death on a cross is not going to do diddly in covering my sin. Only an infinite sacrifice can take care of my sin, plus all of your sin. So God does that in the fully human, fully deity person of Jesus Christ. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. Now this even hammers home more the deity of Christ. You and I should not bow the knee to anyone other than the one true living God. We should not have any Lord over us. You know, I, I said a couple weeks ago when Queen Elizabeth died, you know, what denomination was she when she died? You all said Church of England. I said, no. She died on Scottish soil, so she died as a Presbyterian, because by English or Great British rule, law, the royal family, when they step on Scottish soil, become Presbyterian. Outside Balmoral Castle, Queen Victoria had built Crathy Kirk. It's a Church of Scotland parish, and the royal family on Sundays traipses across the street, and they worship there in the Presbyterian church. That's why her funeral in Edinburgh wasn't at the Anglican Cathedral, it was at St. Giles Cathedral, which is the Presbyterian Mother Kirk. Uh, if you've never been there, it's a really cool church to visit. So anyway, so here, back in the 1640s, there was a battle between the Scots and the British over who was the head of the church. And the Brits said, you know, the king or the queen had the church. And the Scots said, no, only Jesus is Lord. Lord of the church and Lord of everything else. And that led to what was called the covenant being signed in Scotland and resulted in a lot of Presbyterian pastors and lay people being hunted down by the English and, and uh, killed or shipped to the colonies as not indentured servants but as slaves on plantations. My family might have been part of that. We arrived in 1646 in Virginia and they were covenanters can't prove they came as slaves, but they could easily escape off the plantation because they were white. But um, so to this day, the Church of Scotland does not have the monarch as the head of the church, only Jesus. So the queen's just another parishioner when she's in Crathy Kirk, or the now King Charles. So the creed says, his only son, our Lord. Um, and of course, the Bible makes clear in the New Testament that Jesus is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And you and I either believe that or we don't. Again, I said, you know, you have that idea that God is my co-pilot. Get rid of it. 
Uh, lordship completely destroys the myth that there is any other ultimate authority of our lives other than Jesus Christ, King of kings, Lord of lords. It also destroys the myth that we all hold to of sacred versus secular. We all have believed the myth that there's a sacred dimension to life and there's a secular dimension to life. There's nothing in the Bible about that. A lot of you come here on Sunday doing your sacred duty. Come to church. Sunday is the Lord's Day. Sunday is when we worship. We gather with other Christians and blah, blah, blah. But Monday, without even thinking about it, we just revert back to now I'm in the real world. And the, the way you and I conduct business, the way you and I do anything, has a spiritual dimension to it. I like to say God's just as interested in what you're doing at 4 o'clock on Tuesday afternoon as he is in what you're doing right here, right now, or in the sanctuary uh, today. Um, no division between sacred and secular. Satan wants you to believe there is. So you can you know, do your secular thing over here and then clean up. Al Capone never missed Mass. Never. He was the biggest giver to his Roman Catholic parish in New York. He never missed confession on Saturday. Imagine being his priest. Well, I'm mowed down. <laughs> and I guess he absolved him. And so Capone, you know, could live like a gangster during the rest of the week. And then on clean his act up on Sunday, he was the choir boy. There was a guy back in 1957 in Los Angeles named Mickey Cohen. He was a, a, a mafia head honcho, ran prostitution, gambling, drugs. And Billy Graham comes to Los Angeles and has a crusade. And it, it's big news, and Mickey Cohen was interested, so he goes. Lo and behold, Graham gives an invitation. Mickey Cohen goes down, <laughs> accepts Christ. Of course, everybody knows who he is. This is big news. Now, if you've ever, if you know how the Billy Graham thing works, I got the privilege of being on the executive committee in Dallas when he came there in 2002. Um, if you make an, uh, receive Christ, you fill out a card, and every one of those cards is given to a pastor in town, and they follow up, which is one of the really good things they do. It's not just a drive-by evangelism thing. Imagine being the pastor that gets Mickey Cohen's <laughs> card. I don't know who he was, but he went. He made an appointment and went in and visited with Mickey Kahn. And he said, Mickey, I realize this, must, this is such a life-changing thing that's happened to you. You know, I mean, I can just only imagine how this is going to affect you financially, blah, 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 because you're going to have to give up running the prostitution rings and drug trafficking and, and gambling. And Mickey going, what do you mean? I said, well, you can't be a Christian and do all that stuff. And he goes, huh? I went. A number of nights to the Grand Crusade, now, a, a woman got up. She said, I'm an actress, and now I'm a Christian actress. And some guy got up and said he was a baseball player. Now he's a Christian ball player. I just see myself as a Christian gangster. <laughs> I mean, that's a true story, but that's the way a lot of people think. You know, the sacred, sacred and secular. I can be a 
Christian gangster. No, no, you can't. Um, if God is your co-pilot, move over. Um, you know, I don't know how that story ends. I really don't. You might see Mickey in heaven. Maybe not. I don't know. I don't know. Um, but there's no secular dimension. It's interesting when Constantine, the Roman emperor, became a Christian. He just said, okay, everybody's a Christian in the Roman Empire. Everybody gets baptized. That was the beginning of Christendom, and it's probably not really a good thing. So he had all the Roman legions baptized. Now, back then, the Christian faith was very pacifistic. They were against war and killing, and the Roman soldiers knew this. So a lot of them, when they were baptized, would hold their sword hand out of the water. <laughs> uh, that sounds funny. Think about your own life. What part of your life are you holding out of the water as a Christian? A lot of Christians, you know, get that wallet and hold it out. Because you know? uh, money, that's not spiritual. Money is very spiritual. Jesus said, where your treasure is, that's where your heart's going to be. If your treasure's over here, your heart's going to be over there, not with me over here. That's why faithful investing in the kingdom of God is really not optional if you want to be a healthy, faithful Christian. Uh, lordship implies something very ominous. It's a word we don't like. Obedience. Obedience. Um, a lot of us like to quote the Great Commission. Jesus, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then he says, and teach them all that I have commanded you. So there's these non-optional commands like love your neighbor and um, give your whole life to me. I'd rather not do that. Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. And so we run to James Avery and get a, Celtic, Celtic cross, you know, think we've fulfilled. No, a cross is not jewelry. It's not a nice thing. You know, if Jesus came today, we'd have, we'd be wearing little electric chairs or, uh, around our necks. It's an it's a instrument of execution. Um, all the time, a lot of times we, I hear Christians say, well, I just got diagnosed with fill in the blank. I guess this is my cross to bear. No, it's a trial you're going through. Cross is something you can pick up and then put down. It's a voluntary thing. Nobody volunteers to get cancer or Alzheimer's or anything else. So when Jesus says, take up your cross, that's a volitional choice, decision you and I make. Either pick it up or not. And then we can lay it down. A lot of times I lay my cross down and go over here and and then come back and pick it up. I preached a sermon one time in Dallas called The Search for the Balsa Wood Cross. That's the one I'd like to find. Okay. Um, are you and I willing to die for Christ? That's what Christ is implying when he says take up your cross. Are you willing to go and be crucified for my sake? Just this morning, I'm walking my dogs, and I, I pray this every day. I say, Lord, give me the faith and the courage to take up my cross today and follow you, even if that means I die. 
And I said, Lord, I'm going to make that decision now, not should I be in the situation where that might happen. You've you got to make that decision now before it happens. Not that the Holy Spirit probably wouldn't give you the courage to do it. At the, but it's best to make it now while you're... Um, the story that's seldom told is the First World War, World War story, 1917, when the Turks did a genocide against the Armenians in Turkey. The Armenians were Christians, and the Turks were Muslim, and they killed over a million Armenians in 1917. And they did it like this. They would dig with bulldozers, big trenches, line up hundreds of Armenians, men, women, little children. They were told that they could avoid going into that ditch by when a guy comes along with a pistol and puts it under your chin, you can say one of two things, Allah or Jesus. If you say Jesus, and you're in the ditch. And they said, say Allah, we will let you walk free. Over a million Armenians, not one broke ranks and said Allah, not one. Imagine you're a seven-year-old boy and your dad's there and your dad goes, Jesus, and then it's under your chin. I'd be tempted to go, Lord, you know, I really believe in you. I'm going to say this. Allah, I'm going to say Allah, not believe it, because I'm better alive for you than dead. No Armenian did that. They all died. Are you and I willing? The Lordship of Christ had gripped them to that point. I believe in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, we're going to go through the virgin conception and virgin birth today, then we'll tackle what's called the passion of Christ, the suffering died, suffered under Pontius Pilate. We'll do that next week. Let me just say a couple of things about the virgin conceived by the Holy Ghost. We're talking here about the virgin conception. The miracle is not a virgin birth. Jesus was born normally. The miracle is Gabriel comes to Mary and says, uh, guess what, you're pregnant. She goes, are you crazy? I'm a virgin. Uh, no, the Holy Spirit has hovered over you. and I don't know how that works. Again, I believe in God the Father Almighty. So he can do virgin conceptions. And Mary's posture is, okay, be it unto me as you have said. And she wasn't a dummy. She didn't believe, you know, the stork. She knew how babies were made. Um, people back then did not believe the earth was flat. No one ever did. All the studies show now that no, that's stuff the left uses to try, you know, when they call you a flat earther. That's just, no one's ever been a flat earther. Uh, born of the Virgin Mary ties Jesus directly again to humanity. But conceived by the Holy Ghost ties him directly again. You have this fully God, fully man. And that's how God brings together this conundrum of God's the only one who can pay the price for our sin, but it has to be man that pays the price, humanity, and he does it through the virgin conception. Um, so Jesus is the ultimate extraterrestrial. He's come to this planet uh, in the flesh and blood, as God's rescue mission. I've told this story before, but it's worth repeating if you weren't here. Um, you know, the virgin birth, virgin conception is a big stumbling block for a lot of 21st century scientifically minded people. 
Uh, I have a master's in reproductive physiology. I believe the virgin conception because I first believe that God is almighty. Um, that shouldn't be a, a stumbling block for you. I, I've talked about theology is best done in a posture of humility. And I told you, some of you were here a few weeks ago, and I told you the story of Karl Barth, who's a 20th century Reformed theologian, Swiss. He grew up in a, some, a time during the late 19th century, and seminaries had been captured by 19th century liberalism and the Enlightenment and rationalism, and that meant throw all the miracles out of Scripture. They tried to keep the teachings of Jesus without the miracles of Jesus. Bart graduates believing all that stuff. And then he takes his little country church in the Swiss Alps, and they have the Apostles' Creed in their service. And he doesn't believe the virgin conception at all. And he's thinking, well, I've got a dilemma here. What do I, I want to be a man of integrity. Should I take the creed out of the service? Maybe they won't notice. Should I strike that phrase out of the creed? Or should, as we're saying it, when I get to that point, I just fall silent and don't say it? And so he's wrestling with that. And then he comes to a great uh, epiphany. He comes to the conclusion that what if the larger wisdom of the entire church, of the capital C, could it be that the wisdom of the church outweighs my single finite wisdom? And he places that and he thinks, I'm going to err on the side of the wisdom of the church. So he leaves the creed in, he leaves that phrase in, and he decides, I'm just going to go ahead and say it with the congregation, even though I don't believe it. They're the two best defenses of the virgin conception written in the 20th century are by Gratia Machen, a Presbyterian professor at Princeton Seminary, and Karl Barth, who becomes a great defender. By saying the creed, finally the Holy Spirit lifted the veil and he became a strong believer. Um, I'd encourage you, if there's parts of the creed you don't understand or don't believe, say it. It's not your creed. It's the creed of the community of faith. There are many things in the United States I don't like. It's my country, and I'm going to go as, as long as it doesn't compromise my uh, relationship with Christ. Um, we should all cultivate a spirit of teachableness and humility. You know, every... Christmas, we're inundated with TV shows wanting to tell us the real meaning of Christmas. Uh, the real meaning is, of Christmas is that we're bound for hell. And God came and did for you and me what we cannot and could never do for ourselves and accomplish on the cross as the God-man, the once-for-all sufficient, perfect, infinite sacrifice that covers all of our sins. I'm going to close with a funny story. Thinking about Christmas Eve, Lewis Abendant. Lewis was a stickler for worship. You could burn down the church and you go, oh, golly, Ron. But if you messed up in worship, oh, man, he would get so upset. And I told you about the time I, I uh, three weeks in a row, I blew the Apostles' Creed. He was, Take the creed up there with. I, no, I know it. I, and um, Christmas Eve, 1980. Seven. 
And um, this was a brand, that was a brand new building. And Christmas was on a Friday. Of course, we had that big Christmas Eve bulletin. Um, Christmas Eve was a Super Bowl for Lewis. And this elaborately styled bulletin. Well, they hadn't come in that day. And Lewis is freaking out. And everybody that was in the services, we gathered in the chancel that afternoon with our rough drafts. And we're going through the service to make sure everybody had it down impeccably. And I'm standing near the preacher's alley door. I'm the closest one to it. And the door cracks open. It's Joyce Baker, Lewis's secretary. She Ron, Ron, the bulletins are here. Like, oh, hey, Lewis, the bulletins have come in. He's like, oh, oh, great. I said, I'll go down and get one for everybody. And so I go down and I get them. They're in that workroom. And I'm looking on it, and the, on the front cover was the Ascension window. Uh, really big, blown up. I thought, <laughs> an idea came on. I got a pair of scissors. I cut the Ascension window out on one, flip it upside down, put a piece of tape on there, and put it on a bulletin, and then put that one on top of the others. And I walked back down, and I said, Lewis, here are the bulletins. He's going, oh, thank God. I said, there's only one problem here. What? I held it up. He's like, ah, ah. and then I, I peeled it off and showed. He chased me around the communion table <laughs> there. And, and you know what? Right before, Rightfully so. right before he died, I was down in my barn with, looking for something else, and I found that bolt, and I went over to Lewis's house and took it to him. That's not the day he died. That's not what killed him. Um, but uh, anyway, that's a fond memory. Of, I just love that man. Love that man. Well, we need to quit. Next week, we'll look at the passion of Christ. Uh, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried, and descended into hell. So we'll be talking about what does that phrase, descended into hell, mean? And no church should omit that. I'm glad this one never did. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your rescue mission. Um, we couldn't have come up with anything like this, that you, the infinite God, would actually be able to enter into your own creation, into time and space, take on flesh and blood without becoming unlike yourself as God and accomplishing the once for all sufficient, perfect sacrifice that covers all of our sin as we bow the knee to you as Lord, our only Lord. Bring home that faith to our hearts, Lord, um, and take us deeper in a relationship with Christ every day that we're on this planet. And we ask it all in his name. Amen.